When I say really challenged, I mean challenged in such a way that you thought to yourself, God, what are you doing? What's going on here? Why are you doing this? Where are we going from here? Do you have a plan, Lord? Or is this just uh, is this just free and open and you're not in control of this at all? Where are you, God? I don't know if you've ever if you've ever faced that kind of circumstance. Sometimes we do. I remember uh, years ago, a good friend of Robin's and mine, and in fact, some of you here, I would think, because I, it seems like years ago she may have been here at some point. Mala Segram may have been uh, in Calgary. Molly is from uh, Singapore, was a nurse, still is a nurse. And, um, oh, it must have been 10 years ago now or so, she was doing some nursing way up north in Ontario. And the plane in which she was riding was getting ready to land at a remote airport where she was doing her remote nursing. And just before she got to the airport, the plane suddenly just dropped out of the sky. And it didn't drop 10,000 feet or something like that. It was only 100 feet, I think. And they landed on a frozen lake. And for whatever reason, all of the impact of the crash, it seemed, went right up through Mala's seat. She was the only one injured on the plane. But when the plane hit the ice... Uh, the force went up through her seat and it severed her spinal cord instantly. And she described for me how uh, after the crash, as things started to unfold, and she thought, oh, I need to get up and, and help somebody if they've banged their head or whatever. And she tried to get up and she couldn't. And she recalled, she said, I looked at my legs and I tried to make them move and they wouldn't move. And it felt as though they weren't my legs. Like, whose legs are these attached to my body? They wouldn't move. Well, she uh, remains in a wheelchair today. She uh, has continued to do some nursing. Although, uh, right now, what she's done is she's back in Victoria and she's opened a children's bookstore and uh, continues to minister to people through that. What's always amazed me is that after Mala's accident, how unlike so many people, she appeared at least, and maybe I'm just wrong about this, maybe, I, maybe I'm myself in denial, but there seemed to be no period of denial with Mala. There seemed to be no period of grieving. There seemed to be no period where she said to herself, God, what have you done to me in this? Instead, what seems to have happened is that she just carried on with faith. And she said to herself, the Lord is the Lord of the universe and the Lord is the Lord of my body and me not being able to walk is not the largest tragedy that has ever faced the world. And she may in one sense even think it's not the largest tragedy that she's ever faced because her faith is still intact. I don't know what it is that would shake her, but if that won't shake her, what's going to shake her? And so she remains faithful. I don't know if you could do that. 
I don't know if I could do that. I would like to think that I could. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to think that if you faced that kind of tragedy in your life that you could somehow get through it? That you would be strong enough even through that? Boy, I'd, I'd like to think I could. I'd like to think I'm strong enough. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. I'd like to not have to find out. I want you to stand for a moment. Glenn, if you want to turn on the screen. Please stand. Last week, we quoted together this passage, at least most of it. I've added one at the end here to reflect uh, what I think is a passage that needs to go along with this. But I'd like you to say this with me, and I want to say it three times together, just like we did last week. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. One last time. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Please have a seat. This passage tells us what God wants and why. God wants us to be faithful. And if I was to say to you, why is it that we should be faithful? Or why is it that God wants us to be faithful, even in light of many of the things that could happen to us in life? The answer is, because He is faithful. And we tend to read into the events in life and think to ourselves, well, this is the one that reveals to me that God is not necessarily watching out for me like I thought He was. And it causes our faith to be questioned. And all the while, I think, God wants to say to us, No, I am faithful. You, you may think that I'm not. It looks on the surface because of the tragedies that befall us like God is not protecting, but He is. And there are some times when He allows things to happen, I believe in a, in a free kind of universe here, I believe in a universe in which God allows things to take place. But it doesn't mean that He's not in control. It doesn't mean that He's not watching out for us. It doesn't mean that He's not faithful. And He wants us in response to be faithful. Well, I think getting this passage right and understanding it is necessary for getting chapter 11 of Hebrews. I think if you, if you don't understand the definition of faith, you don't get the assurance that is supposed to be there, the certainty that's supposed to be there, despite the evidence that sometimes is around us or the lack thereof, I think you missed something from Hebrews chapter 11. So we need to get that. I wanted us to quote that and have that passage kind of ingrained in our minds. Now there's some other things though that I want us to get this morning. And I want to show you first of all kind of the way I approach a biblical passage. And so, some questions about our text. Why are these particular thoughts here? 
as we read through chapter 11. The roll call of faith. The description of all the people who are faithful in Hebrews chapter 11. Why are those thoughts there? Why does the writer put them just the way he does in that way? What precisely is the point being made in things being set forth in exactly this way? And why are these specific words chosen to fit precisely here? For example, the words... Oh, it's going twice on me. There we go. For example, the words by faith. 21 times in the New Testament, the expression by faith is used in conjunction with a prominent figure in Israel's history of his, an exa- using this example of his or her faithfulness. 21 times in this chapter alone, that expression by faith is used. And then look at verse 32 with me. If you're turning turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, I want you to look at verse 32. Throughout the chapter, we've got this expression, by faith. And so it'll say, by faith Noah, or by faith Moses, or by faith Abraham, by faith Rahab. And then verse 32 says, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Now, the point of verse 32 is to say, I could go on and on and on. I'm giving you just a short list, he says, of the things or the people who have had great faith in the past. And so this expression, by faith, is crucial. With reference to this passage, if you don't get this, you miss the whole point. He has carefully planned it out, thought this out, And the most obvious thing that the writer wants to say to his readers is he wants them to have faith, to live by faith, for them to be faithful. And again, if I ask you why is that he wants that, if you look at chapter 10, verse 23 across the page, the answer is he wants us to do this because God has been faithful to us. So that's a main point. By faith. So if we're going to understand Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to have to get that. Another thing we're going to have to get is this notion of being commended. Look at verse 2 in Hebrews 11. Notice it says, this is what the ancients were commended for. And we've read that. Then I want you to look at the very end of the chapter. Look at verse 39 of Hebrews 11. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Notice that he begins the chapter with the notion of commended. He ends the chapter with the notion of commended. And so what we got here is a a guy who said, living by faith is absolutely crucial and being commended by that faith is where we're trying to go. So if you're going to get chapter 11 of Hebrews, you're going to have to get what it means to have faith. You're going to have to understand the importance of being commended by God. And he wants to encourage these people to have faith because this is the source of their being commended by God. Well, I think asking that kind of question of the text is fruitful. Okay, so now if you're with me and you understand that this chapter is talking about what it means to live by faith, and if you understand that we are looking toward how it is that God is blessing us and commending us for that faith, 
Then I want us to look at the rest of the chapter. And I've got just a couple of points here I want to make that I think are, I hope, crucial. They seem to me to be crucial. Look at verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Is there any challenge today directed at this concept? Is there any challenge directed at your faith today with regard to the notion of creation? Is there? Ed, you're nodding your head. Why are you nodding your head? Of course it has. It's interesting to me that right in the text, there's a reference to a very modern discussion. The discussion of, did God create this world or did it just occur on its own? Now, I personally am of the view that even if there was some kind of Big Bang, like let's imagine that science proves someday that there was a Big Bang, there's somebody, I think, who stands behind that Big Bang. And I would say that the one who stands behind the Big Bang is God and that he is responsible for our universe. It strikes me that when it comes to the question of faith, that here's a a very contemporary question dealt with right in the beginning. Did God create this world or did he not? And the answer is, he created it. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. There's a question here about being commended for sacrifices. Why is it, if you ever asked this question, that God accepts Abel's sacrifice and he doesn't accept Cain's? Why did that happen? It appears as though there was something faithful about Abel's response and in fact, something superior about his sacrifices. What is it about his sacrifice that was so good? Well, I think that Abel probably had confidence enough in God to give God his very best. The text in Genesis talks about Cain making a sacrifice, but never the best sacrifice. And so my impression is that Abel gave the very best sacrifice. Why did he give the very best? Because he knew that God was quite capable of meeting his needs. You can give your very best to a God when you know that God is capable of taking care of you when you give him your very best. And so, go ahead. Try him on this. See if God will in fact bless you when you give to him. And I think that he will. I'm not saying, by the way, that if you give God 10% of your income or more than that, that he's going to make you wealthy. That's not the point. But the point is is that God will continue to bless you. He will take care of you. And we need to have faith in order to give to him and give sacrificially to God. Well, that's a fairly contemporary kind of issue. Look at verse 7. By faith Noah, when he... Uh, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What is it that stands out about Noah? Being able to have faith when he can't possibly see. And so Noah can't see. What did it not done when Noah got ready to build a big boat? It hadn't rained. And he has faith that God is going to carry them through a flood that Noah has never seen and can't imagine. You can't imagine rain if you've never seen it. You can't imagine a flood that you've never had. But Noah trusts God through that event, 
has confidence in him anyway, and God blesses him. Well, that's a fairly contemporary problem when it comes to wondering how it is that God's going to turn around a world that appears to be so lost and heading in a direction that is so negative. I don't know about you, but I look at our world and I think, this situation is hopeless. People are killing each other on buses in tragic, horrible ways. With the kids in here this morning, I won't even detail all that. It's horrible. And if we were to just catalog the things that are happening in our world today, it's not necessarily a a great picture. And if you're like me, typical North American, we tend to be less hopeful today than what we have been for generations. The generations that are growing up today tend to look at our world and think there is no hope for things to get better. Because for them now and for a while, our world has been getting worse, not better. Can God possibly turn that around? Can things actually get better? Even in the face of all the evidence that says they won't or they can't? Well, I actually think they can. Like I think it's possible that God can work something and turn this around and move us in a positive direction. But it's going to take some faith in order for us to think that that's a possibility. My point here is that when you read through the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, you see again and again statements about faith, people having faith about all kinds of issues that are in fact contemporary. They're not far-fetched. We're not talking about people for which there's no parallel. It's not unrealistic. And so the expectation by God of you that you too will have faith is a realistic one. I don't think it's too much for us to think that we can have faith despite the things that happen around us. I don't think it's too much to think that we can have faith despite the fact that much of the world doesn't believe. I don't think it's too much for us to have faith despite so much of the world says God doesn't exist. In the face of those kinds of claims, God calls us to faithfulness. He called them to faithfulness. And what happens when they're faithful? They're commended for exactly that. And we need to have that same kind of faith. Now, what is it that we're specifically going to be looking for and about which we're going to have faith? I want you to look at verse 13. I've been trying to think about what it is that really characterizes the faith of these people in the book of Hebrews. And why is it that these people specifically were chosen? Lots of people are faithful. These are the ones that are chosen. Why is it that they're faithful? Or why is it that they're the ones chosen as the examples? And I think it heads in this direction. And this is something that we need to pay attention to. Verse 13 says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. 
people who say such things show they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And here's what I think the problem is. This specifically says that we're not to think about the city that we could return to. I've talked before about the historical background and the fact that in the book of Hebrews, there are people who want to return to Judaism. And just like us, sometimes being called to return to the world, these people were called to give up their faith in Christ and to go back to Judaism. And the writer says, don't give up where you're going. They were thinking what it meant for them to be Jewish. They were thinking about what they had lost. And these Christians were thinking about going back. I think that's what it means to be faithless. I mentioned last week how there are no doubt in this group people who would be tempted to give up their faith. You go to work and there are people who mock you. You turn on the television and you watch any number of television hosts or movies that are going to mock the Christian faith. You go to university and there's a professor who will stand up in front of your biology class and say that anyone who thinks that the creationist perspective is truth is simply ignoring reality and sticking their head in the sand. There are challenges to our faith on a consistent basis. But God wants us to be faithful and the question of turning back was the same kind of question that they were facing. Will they turn back to the Judaism and ignore who Jesus is? Will we turn back from what we've had in faith? Our problem is not that we want to return to a previous life. Our problem is that we want to return to this one or retain this life. We're people who, in the face of all the temptations about our faith, are challenged with the world's beauty, the world's blessings, and all the things that can distract us from being faithful. When someone says, there is no God, isn't it easy to be materialistic at that point? When someone says, your faith is based in nothing, isn't it easy at that point to decide that I'm going to compromise my faith and maybe depend more on the world? My sense is that's what we do. It's an easy thing to be dragged away by the world when the world is consistently telling us that there is no God. It's an easy thing to be materialistic when the world says there is no God. It's an easy thing for me to be selfish when the world says there's no God. I'm tempted to be selfish anyway. Even with my faith intact, I'm tempted to be materialistic. And when the world is constantly screaming at me that there's no good reason for me to have faith, it's awfully easy for me at that point to say, okay, I won't. And for something like materialism to actually come in and have a dominant kind of role. What will change things for us now. 
What will change our materialism? And John and I have a discussion every now and then where John will say to me, Kelly, Christians think too much about the future. Or Christians think too much about heaven. And because they think about heaven all the time, they tend not to love their fellow human beings. And so materialism and poverty exist in our world where we're materialistic and there is rampant poverty. And because Christians are so concerned about the future, they tend to not minister to those around them. We had that discussion, John? Sometimes that happens. I have no doubt that there are Christians who think so much about the future. In fact, I've, sometimes I've heard evangelists preach this way, preaching and talking about the future as if that's the only thing there is impo- that's important to Christians. And so therefore, we don't have to worry about anything down here. And those who are poor, they're poor because they're faithless. Well, I think our world needs to change. And I would say that what's going to change our world and things like poverty is in fact more of a faith and a confidence in the future and not less. And so it's our view of eternity, I think, that will keep us from being selfish here. It's our view of the future that will stem the tide of materialism. I think it's our view of the kingdom of the future, of the present in the world today that will keep us uh, and enable us to transform things. It's our expectation of a coming city that will help us transform this city. Justice will come when God's people, motivated by the future God has in store for the world, work to bring about the elements of this future. And our view of eternity will move us to reach people for Christ. And what I'm saying is, is this. We also have to have Faith. Specifically, faith in the future, as it's outlined in verses 13 and following, and the faith in the future that they had. Our perspectives have to be long term. Looking at the eternity that God is offering to us. And when we have faith in that eternity, we, can, we will not live the same way here. If I have confidence in the coming of the kingdom of God, if I have confidence in what God is working out among us, if I really have faith in what God is doing in our world today, and if I have confidence that God ultimately is bringing that to his end, then for the first time, I have a chance to really change the things that are going on in society. My son Ryan is here. Every now and then he and I will have some kind of discussion on the phone when he'll, he'll say something about the church and uh, what the church either does or doesn't do well. And he's right. Young people today tend to be critical of the church. I'm not saying that he necessarily is. I'm just saying that we tend to say the church has to get something right here. We're not doing it right. The one thing I think we have to hold on to is the same kind of faith in God to work out the future that the ancients had. And when we hold fast to that future, that is the only means whereby our world today can be changed. 
And so the world is constantly calling us to something else. Focus here. Focus on yourself. Focus on what you can have. Focus on the fact that God doesn't exist. And there is a, there's a cry from the world for us to change our perspectives about eternity. From my perspective, that's the one thing we cannot do. You can't change your perspective about God's eternity, which is essentially a faithless decision, and still see the world changed. The world will change when Christians who have a hope about the future have an amazingly strong faith about that hope and that future. And if we can see God working that future out among us, that's the only hope really that the world has. And we have to have confidence in that hope. So be faithful, brothers and sisters. Be faithful the way they were faithful concerning the hope in the future. It really is the only hope that we've got. Let's pray. Lord, help us to have faith. The the world calls us in so many different directions, different dimensions, different means to give up confidence and faith in you. They tell us you don't exist. They tell us you didn't create this. You tell us that there will be no end created by you. Help us to have confidence in those things. Help us to have confidence in you your existence, in your future. Help us to look, Father, for the city in the future that you're creating for us. Help us, Father, to see that only through the confidence we have in you building a new future for us, that only in that way is the world going to be transformed. Help us to bring that future into our world and make it a reality. Father, we thank you for the faith that these others have had before us. Help us to have faith after them. We praise you through Christ. Amen.